The text that we preach on tonight will be concluding sermon of a series of 37 sermons on the book of Ephesians, and it would be fitting for us to go back before we read the text and the ending to the beginning, and we're going to do that. We're going to begin by reading again the beginning of Ephesians, Ephesians 1, first 12 verses, and put those before your mind, and you will see, hopefully, a connection between the beginning and the ending of the book, and see a connection to many of the themes of the book that are introduced right from the beginning. Ephesians 1, first 12 verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you, and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved." in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, wherein He hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure which He hath purposed in Himself, that, in the dispensation of the fullness of times, He might gather together in one, All things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in Him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will, that we should be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with the holy, that Holy Spirit of promise. We read that far in chapter 1, and now we turn to chapter 6. And we're going to read the last four verses, which are our text, although we'll concentrate on the last two. Beginning with verse 21, "...but that ye also may know my affairs and how I do, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that ye might know our affairs, and that he might comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ." Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, our text tonight, for the most part, is what we call a blessing, even an apostolic blessing. 
because these are blessings that come often in the epistles of the apostles to the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. They are blessings insofar as they actually impart blessings. To be sure, they take the form of a prayer, but at the same time, the church has always recognized they are not a prayer as such. They don't take the typical form of a prayer. They are simply pronouncements. And pronouncements now of not some wish or even a hope, but the idea is pronouncements that actually impart the very virtues and graces or the blessings that are being spoken about. Now, these apostolic blessings, this one now by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus, usually come in two parts. A first part that brings some last practical, timely instruction that generally has to do with the immediate circumstances of the Apostle himself or the church to which he is writing. Often they add a certain warmth and liveliness even to the epistle itself because they add a personal note to what the apostle has written and a personal note even with regard to the church itself. Often they are very touching and even instructive about the apostle, his labors, his helpers, or the church itself. In this text, it's the first two verses of it where he simply concludes before he actually blesses them by telling them that he's going to send them a helper named Tychicus. There it is. No introduction. All we're told is he is a beloved brother and he is also a faithful minister. And Paul the Apostle, with the authority given to him as an apostle, and not being able to be at Ephesus because of his bonds, which he mentioned earlier, informs them that they may look forward to seeing this minister, this faithful minister. And that he has the approval of the apostle and ought to have their approval because he is a beloved brother. And he's going to send him in order to make known things to them, to reveal things, to further instruct them, and instruct them in what he's doing so that they might know what the apostle is doing. He doesn't want to take the space now in this letter. That can wait. And also to comfort their hearts. And then the second part, is the blessing itself, which is in the last two verses here. The apostolic blessings in Scripture, and in particular those of the Apostle Paul, always have three characteristics of them. The first is that they are all Trinitarian, and explicitly so. 
Although some would say that the Spirit frequently is missing. They are pronouncements of some blessing of God from God the Father through God the Son. But they are apostolic blessings that are Trinitarian inasmuch as, although the Spirit Himself is not listed by name, as we saw this morning, and why this sermon dovetails so well with the sermon this morning, the very blessings He speaks of are the very virtues of the Spirit Himself. In a very real way, the Apostle is saying, Blessed be you with God the Spirit, from God the Father, through God the Son. And one could see, or should see, that the grace, the love, the peace that are mentioned here are the grace, the love, and the peace of the Spirit Himself. Secondly, they always end in Amen. Indicates that this is the authoritative declaration of the Apostle on behalf of Christ, and what he says shall certainly be. It actually imparts these blessings. And thirdly, they're always given with the intention or purpose of comfort and encouragement. There's a practical side to them. These blessings of this passage are being preached here tonight because they are the blessings from God the Father, through God the Son, even the blessings of God the Holy Spirit upon you. They are pronounced upon you this evening. Do not miss that. Even though we will preach about the passage and explain the passage, in that God is blessing you. And He's blessing you inasmuch as this is an apostolic blessing that comes from an apostle who speaks for, as we learned last week, an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And they are blessings spoken to you inasmuch as this church is a true church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Consider with me tonight, grace to all that love Jesus. That's the main blessing. Grace to all that love Jesus. And we notice that under three main points about that grace, that it is a blessed grace, a particular grace, and finally, a powerful grace. This text is a benediction, a pronouncement of God's blessing upon His people. A blessing that consists of grace. It is a blessing or pronouncement of grace upon God's people who have God's grace. This benediction, this blessing, beloved people of God, is an example of what the Apostle prayed that the people ask God for boldness about. He had earlier said to them, asked them to pray to God that He, God's ambassador in bonds, might have boldness to speak 
And perhaps when you first heard that, you said to yourself, well, of course, the ambassador of God, the minister, the Apostle Paul, needs our prayers, and he needs our prayers so that he might speak boldly. Prayers are often raised in consistory room with regard to that before a sermon is given. Prayers that the minister might have boldness to speak. But we often think that perhaps that boldness is only required in certain instances. Perhaps with regard to certain doctrines or certain things that are said that are not received. But the idea actually is that everything that is preached on behalf of our Lord Jesus Christ requires boldness. And nothing exemplifies that more than even a blessing. Surely the Word of God requires boldness in many more instances than we might think about. Think about simply what the Apostle has already preached in this epistle and the opposition that requires boldness on the part of the Apostle to preach it. For example, opposition in the culture of his day. The Apostle Paul is preaching that not Caesar, who considers himself God, is king and lord, but a man who had been crucified by Caesar. A man who was even dead, raised up now, but Jesus is Lord. That message was not received by the culture of his day. Or, in light of the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ, he had told the people of God that they have to live not in fornication, in the evil lusts of the flesh, which was the popular opinion of the day that this is normal. This is like eating and drinking, fornicating. And the apostle said, no, that message required boldness to speak. He had preached a message that required boldness to speak in the church of his day. The Jews did not receive the message that Jesus of Nazareth, that humble, lowly man whom they killed, was God's Christ. They did not receive His message from the ambassador Christ Himself that we are righteous not by obedience to the law, but we are righteous by faith, God imputing His righteousness to us. They did not receive His message that we are saved by grace and not by our own works. But even a pronouncement of blessing requires boldness, and we are going to see that. There are many who might, you would think, approve of a pronouncement of blessing of God's grace and mercy and love. But they want that pronouncement not to be the pronouncement of the Apostle. They would like that pronouncement to be a wish, a hope. A pronouncement that is not self-fulfilling. A pronouncement that actually imparts what it speaks. But they want a pronouncement that depends upon you to make it happen. They want a pronouncement of God's blessing, of His love, His grace, and mercy of peace upon everyone. 
They want it spoken to everyone and as something God actually imparts to everyone, including God-haters and those who despise our Lord Jesus Christ. But that is not the benediction or blessing of the Apostle Paul upon the church at Ephesus or upon you here tonight. At the outset, we must notice that when it comes to the blessings of God and the blessedness of God, it essentially consists of one thing. To be sure, when one looks closely at the apostolic blessings, one will notice that there are a number of virtues that are most frequently mentioned. Grace, mercy, and peace are among the most common but sometimes also faith and love are included as they are here. And we might imagine that this is a pronouncement of all kinds of disconnected blessings, really, but the idea of them all is there's only one pronouncement of a blessing, but that blessing has many forms. And that one blessing is grace. Even here, when it begins, peace to the brethren and love with faith to the brethren from God the Father, the reason why he adds, grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity, that's the Spirit's way of saying this is a pronouncement of grace. That's why often in the blessings it either begins or ends them. The idea is that anything else that's included, whether it be mercy or peace or love or faith, as is the case in this text, they are all heavenly graces. And we saw that in the very beginning of the book. In the very pronouncement of blessedness, there grace leads after introducing himself, the first things out of the apostle's mouth is, Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace. Grace is what he mentions. And that we saw is next what he is referring to when in the third verse he gives really the theme that we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. There's many blessings, but they are all one. It is the great blessing of God's grace. And the many forms it takes, and the many acts of God that it takes, are all further explained then in the book. So we begin by recognizing that this is a pronouncement of grace to the people of God. And our three points are about that grace, the nature of that grace. So we begin by asking ourselves, well, what is grace? What is grace? There are many different ways to look at grace, and the Bible does do that when studying the Bible. It is very fruitful and important to recognize that grace can have different meanings because it does take different forms. And we even recognize that when we speak about the grace of this or that. 
And we may speak of the grace of peace or the grace of God's mercy or His love, etc. There's many facets to it. It's a wonderful gem in the crown of our Lord Jesus Christ. But first of all, we must look at grace in God Himself. We make a mistake, in other words, when we simply look at grace as something that's imparted or shown to us, or only as it pertains to us. That's a mistake. Herman Hooksma, one of the founders of our denomination, led the way in this when with regard to all the virtues of God, including such virtues as grace and mercy, located them, first of all, in God. He was criticized for that. Criticized because of a deficient view of grace in some cases. When you see, when you look at grace, you see simply as unmerited favor, which it is, grace shown to those who are undeserving, then it might seem foolish to talk about grace in God. And by that we mean grace shown within the being of God. Grace of the Father for the Son, and grace of the Son for the Father, as we considered this morning with regard to the love of God. Is the Son undeserving of the grace because of some sin or fault, as is the case with us? No. Well, then there can't be grace in God, argues the theologians. But that's not right. You see, the Scriptures make clear that just as God is a God of love, and God does not impart to us or show us love, with a love that's different than what He has in His own being, we recognize, for example, that in the being of God, the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. But we don't do that with regard to grace. Well, to do that is to not recognize that God is a God of grace. He is gracious in Himself, apart from us, apart from any attitude toward us, apart from anything that grace is toward us. God is gracious in His own being. And you will see that if you recognize, first of all, what grace is as to its essence or core. That word in Scripture really is a word that is synonymous with desirable or beautiful. And it's a meaning that's retained today. We indeed speak that way when we talk about someone who walks gracefully. Or we might say to them, they're a very, they're a person filled with grace. And, and we don't mean undeserved favor. We mean there's a certain beauty and attractiveness to them. And that's the idea in God. God is a God of grace because God is lovely. God is beautiful. God is attractive. Grace is really a reflection of all the virtues of God. And the idea is that exactly because of who God is, He is the eternal and the glorious and the powerful, and He is the just and the righteous God, He is attractive and lovely in His own being. The Father is that toward the Son, and the Son toward the Father. And I hope you see especially those that were here this morning with regard to the Sermon on God's love, that grace and love are very closely related. To be gracious is to be lovely or attractive or beautiful. We can hardly separate those two, can't we? We use them almost as synonyms. 
We love that which is beautiful. And that which is beautiful, we say, is lovely. That's the idea in God. And we talk about that as being grace objectively in God. It's what God is. It's what He is objectively apart from anything else. But if you dig a little deeper, you're going to discover there's another aspect or side of grace, which is it's something in God. It's an attitude. Grace is something that you show. It's something you feel. It's something you can impart. It's something that subjectively is in the heart and mind and will of God. God shows grace. He feels a certain way toward another. And again, the idea is that in the being of God, there is an attractiveness, a certain loveliness and a beauty of the Father that He sees in His Son, and the Son sees in His Father. They are attracted to one another. And again, you hope I see the relationship of that to God's love. There is an attraction of the Father for His Son in His own perfect image, and the Son for His Father. It's an aspect and part of their love and of their delight and their life with one another. Can you see how that's essential in God? And there's one more thing then that we may speak about grace that the Bible covers and that we especially see as it relates to us and that grace is not merely something that God is objectively or something that He feels an attitude, but it is a power. You see, exactly because of the love of God, grace is also has that flavor to it. There's an attractiveness and a desire and a beauty that desires the good, the highest good for the other, and then accomplishes it, brings it. God just doesn't simply look at His Son and say, what a lovely, beautiful, wonderful Son I have. But his heart aches and yearns for the good, the highest good of his son, and is continually imparting that to him. It's a power that accomplishes something that is in God, that is rooted in that grace, that beauty, that loveliness, that attitude of favor of God in his own being. And now, now we can take that and apply it to us. Everything there applies. If you ask, what is the grace of God toward us? What is it that is being imparted to us when we're blessed with God's grace? And the answer is, first of all, an attitude of God that finds us lovely and attractive and beautiful. It's God looking at us and saying, I love. I love that person. I love them like my own son or my own daughter. It is not just an attractiveness or an attitude of favor, but one that sees a beauty and a loveliness there. It's all combined. And we may say also, that when imparted to the object of God's grace, that individual shows forth that grace and indeed is attractive and lovely and beautiful. 
The one to whom God imparts His grace, His beauty, His attitude of favor will reflect that. Will actually be that. And we'll get more into that. Why when we pray for God's grace, it often takes many different forms. It will be a person, for example, who loves God and shows forth the love of God. We'll live in peace with God and show the peace of God toward others. We'll be merciful and kind. And I hope you see that it is exactly here that we get the whole idea of unmerited favor. Because if there's one thing the Apostle has been teaching throughout this book, it is this, that when God looks at us and finds us lovely and attractive and beautiful, we are in fact unlovely, ugly, and opposed to God. What God sees in us is not anything that's naturally lovely or wonderful or attractive to God whatsoever. It is God's looking upon the unbeautiful and saying they're beautiful. Looking upon one who is unlovely. Unlovely exactly because they indeed hate God and have turned against God in their sin. And God says, I find them lovely. That's where that whole idea comes in. And now, just to reiterate so we don't miss it, and it's also then a power, a real power, to take that object of God's grace that in itself is completely unlovable, not desirous at all, ugly with sin of every kind, and make them actually attractive and lovely. So that even others, others can see that very grace that takes power you see, God's attitude of favor toward us, His feelings toward us, His attitude toward us isn't something that's just inside there. Sort of like how we can often feel. We can have all sorts of feelings, but those feelings really can't affect anything often. Not so with God. When God sets His grace upon someone and has that attitude, He actually imparts that grace to them and changes them. That's the blessing here. Now there's one more thing about this that really needs to be said. And there's something about grace. Remember, it's very much like love. Grace and love are virtues of God that to know them, you have to experience them. You have to experience them. I could explain all day to you what grace is objectively and use all the right language and the terms and, 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 and that, but, but in the end, you know God's grace only because you've experienced it. You've actually felt it. You, you know it. And again, there's, there's, there's something like that. There, there's many examples like that, that to understand what grace is. You, you, you Try to explain once in mathematical or scientific terms the beauty of a rose. A rose can be explained in mathematical or scientific terms. But they're as dry as dust, aren't they? To understand the attractiveness or the grace or the beauty 
of a rose, you, you, you have to see one. You have to touch one. You have to put your nose down and, and smell it, don't you? To, to understand the grace of a very graceful person, you, you have to see them in operation. You have to see them walk. You have to see them act. And that's the same thing with regard to us. And why, too, Scripture is so filled with examples of God's grace. There are times, as was the case in this book, where you simply read, by grace we are saved. But then you have to put some meat on that. You have to understand what that means. And you have to understand there's a lot of people that talk long and eloquent about grace and know nothing about grace because the grace they preach isn't real grace. Grace, says the Scriptures, is sort of like a nobleman of the most upright stature and place in the community who decides he's going to go out and marry a filthy whore. Grace is a banker who comes to a person with an unpayable debt and says, I forgive your debt. I mark it paid in full. Go your way. Grace is a set of rich parents with amazingly wealthy property and prestige and glory and honor going down in the slum of a city and picking up some dirty, grubby street urchin and cleaning them up and bringing them into their house and giving them the right to all their property and inheritance. You see? You have to experience it. You have to know it that way. Now, the second point is that this is a particular grace. This is not not a grace that is imparted to all. It's really not even imparted to all who happen to hear this particular blessing. All who are within the hearing of that pronouncement. God's grace is never a grace for all. For all human beings without exception. For even all who hear that pronouncement. And the Apostle makes that perfectly clear here. When he adds, grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. The idea of that is very clear and plain. Grace be to all them and only them who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Not now. Grace be to them because they first loved our Lord Jesus Christ, that they are not the recipients of the grace of God, and they become the recipients of the grace of God only because they first love our Lord Jesus Christ. That's not what he says. That's not the meaning. That's evident, because then that grace would no longer be grace, but it would be merit. It would be earned. That's true even in the being of God. The attractiveness of the Son to the Father is due to His impartation of His own virtue to His Son. That's reflected even in God's dealings with us. As soon as it's earned and deserved, even in your own mind, it's no longer grace. It's not grace. 
That's evident, too, in that the text teaches that the love itself with which we love God is something God must impart in His grace. Notice, the blessing is a blessing not only of grace, but of peace and of love. What that means is, there is no love for Jesus Christ. There can be no love for Jesus Christ unless God first loved us. That, too, is imparted unto us. So that even when we read, grace be to them that love Jesus Christ, the idea is that love Jesus Christ because God in His grace has shown them His love. That's why he doesn't use the word because he wants to understand that that's grace. But nevertheless, there are two reasons that he says what he says. Why does he say, even though the idea is not grace to those because they love Jesus Christ, but grace to those all who love Jesus Christ. Two reasons, really. Number one, so it's absolutely clear to us that God is not gracious to all human beings without exception. Only some. And the some are those who love Jesus Christ. And yes, do not mistake that either. In order to love Jesus Christ, God has to first show them grace. That means in the first instance when God shows grace to us, we did not love Him. So the text isn't saying that either. It's not contradicting that. But it does say that for a reason. To make clear that God's love is particular. And so it's un absolutely clear to those who love God that He's gracious to them. You see... Grace is uh, an invisible thing. It's an attitude of God. It's, it's something inside. And you can ask yourself, how do I know? How do I know God has a gracious attitude toward me? How do I know He feels this way toward me? I, I can't look inside God. I, I can't speak to Him as such. I, I can't find a piece of paper somewhere that says God loves and then insert my name. Well, the way that works in Scripture is by showing that God's grace is only for those who love Him. And why is that? The answer is because I do know one thing. I know it's in my heart. You know and I know the answer to one simple question. Do you love Jesus Christ? The answer to that is not, I don't know. We may say, I'm not sure. But if you love Jesus Christ, you will know that. Oh, there may be many times that you don't. There may be many times that you sin against Him, and sin is hatred against Him, but you know whether or not you love Jesus Christ. Well, if you know that, then you know God has a gracious attitude toward you. And you know that this pronouncement of God's blessing is for you. This is one reason the Apostle adds what he does in sincerity. He adds that, because, as you know and I know, it's easy to say, I love Jesus Christ. It's easy to say that so others hear. It's easy to say that for all kinds of reasons, but it's not true. Oh, I know, indeed, when we sin, we are indeed being insincere, and every one of us can be accused of being insincere for our love of Jesus Christ. And we ought to recognize that when we sin, we are being insincere about our love for Jesus Christ, but at the same time, 
When we love Him, that love is sincere. It's real. And we know it's real. And we know also when our love is insincere, don't we? So that's added there for a reason. So that we understand who we are and that we are the object of God's favor. This grace, we might notice also, is not only for them who love Jesus Christ, but it especially concerns the everlasting love of God for us. That's been the great theme of this entire book. Did you realize that? How often does the book not only speak about the grace of God, by grace ye are saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's one of the great themes of the book. But so is love. We are chosen in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Fourth verse that we read tonight. But God is rich in mercy with great love wherewith He loved us so that even when we were dead in when we were dead in sins, He quickened us together with Christ by grace ye are saved. Notice how you can hardly speak about the grace of God without talking about the love of God, even the eternal love of God. Why did He save us? We read, so that we might know the love of Christ. Chapter 3.19 This is the grace of God whereby in His love He turned us from enemies into friends. Took us from being aliens into a commonwealth, into a kingdom. From those who were opposed to Him and outside of his household, to being members of his household, to being dead, from being dead to living, from sinners to saints. That's the grace of God. And remember, all of it in this book was rooted in the love of God, the great theme of the book, God's love for us in Jesus Christ. There is a universal aspect to this grace. That's worth noting in the passage too. We have to notice the particular aspect to it, but there's also a universal aspect. Notice the emphasis upon that. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, grace to every single man, woman, and child who loves Jesus Christ. To put it another way, in the language of the book, every single woman, man, and child who belongs to Jesus Christ, who has given faith in Jesus Christ, or to put it another way, who belongs to the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every single one of them. Why does he emphasize that? Because sometimes it might not seem so. Again, remember what grace is. Grace is something you experience. And and there are times when through our experiences of life we might doubt the grace of God, question the grace of God. And we need to be reminded, no, God is gracious. And gracious to every one of us who love Him. Not just some of us. Not just those who seem to have more graces than others. But we all have it. Oh, yes, indeed, we were taught Remember earlier that each of us is given a measure in Christ. Christ apportions it. And Christ apportions it according to the circumstances of our life, even according to our sins. Greater and greater measures of grace. Different measures of grace. But on the other hand, to all, to all who love Jesus Christ, all who belong to Him, is given 
this grace of God. There's no one who loves Jesus who lacks grace. We may think so, but that wouldn't be true. This gives us opportunity to remember the communion of the saints too. We're not the only ones who love Jesus Christ. Oh, I know there's plenty who claim to love Him and do so insincerely. And they show that in a number of ways by their promotion of doctrine and practice that is completely contrary to Jesus Christ. That's not love for Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, the grace of God is upon all who love Him. That's what the text says. It is the truth. The form, the particular form of this grace that it takes here in the passage is faith, peace, and love. And faith comes first. When he says, peace to the be brethren, and love with faith, the idea is peace and love with faith. The idea of that, furthermore, is that faith comes first because it is through faith that we receive faith and love. Again, that's something the Apostle taught us. Taught us throughout the book. He prayed that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. And the result, he said, is that we are rooted and grounded in love. Chapter 3, verse 17. Faith itself is a grace. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. The idea is that faith itself is a grace. That's why I said grace is the overarching theme. But remember, faith is always grace. Given in grace. And it comes first. But it never comes alone. It never comes by itself. It being grace, it comes with other graces. Following faith. With faith come peace and love. Peace first. What's that? That's the great grace of God whereby we are no longer at war with Him. We've been reconciled. He is our friend. We know Him as our friend. Formerly, He was our enemy. And I'm talking now from our perspective. That's an interesting thing here. Take note that both of these are from our perspective. They have to do with regard to our attitude toward God. We are now at peace with God. We who formerly hated Him and were His enemies now love Him. Where does that come from? Again, found in the book. It always is the great grace that follows faith. By the way, it's worth a study too. Go through the Bible sometime and notice how many times peace follows faith. Jesus would say, Thy faith hath made thee whole. Thy faith hath saved thee. And then add, now go in peace. What is that? That's a reflection of something. Something the Apostle Paul mentions in Romans 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. That explains why we have peace with God. We have peace with God because we've been reconciled to Him and we've been reconciled because our sins have been paid for. They've been atoned. And by faith we know that. We believe that. And so that we may live before Him in comfort. Know that we are the objects of His grace and not His curse of His love and not His hatred. And then love. There can be no peace 
with God. There can be no faith toward God. There can be no grace of God without it ending in love. Love. I love how the Apostle brings that in in this particular apostolic benediction. What, what a fitting book for that to happen. He's pointing out something. And that is, it is the great end or goal, the great purpose of God in imparting grace to us that we now be beautiful and lovely. Actually that. Not now as something God views us and it's a mirage. It's not real. The Bible does recognize that when God first sets His grace upon us, we are not gracious. We are not beautiful. We are not lovely. But God transforms us. That's the power of His grace. And so it will always end in and have as its purpose love for God. And again, he's primarily talking about that. When he's saying grace, mercy, peace, love be upon you, it's not simply that God loves you. I pray that God loves you. God already loves us. But it's pronouncing God's blessing of His love for us such that we love Him. Even though we already love Him, that we love Him more and more and more. Included in that love is living in love as the commandments state. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Again, a great theme in the book. You, you cannot talk about God's gracious love for us without getting to our love for Him and the neighbor. The one leads to the other. It's not optional. It's not a maybe thing. It's not haphazard. It inevitably and powerfully leads to that. Simply take note. With all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love. One of the first words we read in what we call the practical section. But speaking the truth in love, grow up into Him in all things, which is the head even Christ. What is it to mature in Christ? To speak the truth. Oh, in love. And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given Himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Someone that wants to preach and pronounce simply that God loves you, Christ loves you, even preach a particular love of Christ, not universal, but particular for His own people, and not have that inevitably, powerfully, irresistibly result in us loving Him, walking in love, loving one another, doesn't know anything about the love of God in Christ. Husbands, love your wives. And so it's a powerful grace, beloved. It is always that in the church. It's not a wishful thing. There's nothing that depends upon you. But rather, it's the opposite. It affects you. It changes you. Why is it? Why is it? that the child of God must love God and Jesus Christ and must love his neighbor. Because God's grace is powerful. That's why. Because what God pronounces upon us actually affects that in us. It changes us. Which is exactly why when we love Jesus Christ, we know God has been gracious to us and is gracious and continues to be gracious to us. You see, if God's gracious to everyone and loves everyone, you'll never know that. you never understand it. 
then salvation is all of you, because of you, for your sake, by you. And that's no salvation at all. This book, especially in its last words, brings home to us, beloved, that wonderful truth. The grand and glorious truth that we are what we are because God in Jesus Christ loved us. Loved us even before the foundation of the world. It is in love that He chose us. It is in love that He sent Jesus Christ. It is in love that He was the propitiation for our sins. It is in love that He gave us in faith, incorporating us into Jesus Christ. It is in love that He made us sons and daughters, heirs, gave us an inheritance. And it is in His love, the great grace of His love, that He transforms us, changes us, so that we now love Him. And that is an absolutely certain thing. And that is why the benediction ends the way it does, as will the sermon. To you, peace be to you, brethren, in love, with faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, O Lord, we thank Thee for the great blessing of Thy grace. For that great grace of Thy love. That great grace of peace and faith that is granted to us in our Lord Jesus Christ and whereby we truly and indeed love Thee, our God. And so we give thanks and we, reply, we rely upon the continuing gift of that grace and love and peace unto us, thy people in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.